Hey there, Team Health Tech. On the show, we talk a lot with founders about the journey of innovating and developing and manufacturing and then commercializing and scaling a piece of technology in healthcare, be it some software or a device. One co-founder in the early stages and making traction in this space is Ben Lindsay from Solution, the first clinically validated medical device to treat shin splints. And today we're talking all about the journey of bringing a medtech product to market in Australia. And we'll learn more about his story as a professional swimmer and their solution. Let's make it happen, Team Health Tech. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Ben Lindsay. He's a multi-award winning biomedical engineer and co-inventor of the Solution Medical Device. In addition to his work in biomedical engineering, Ben was also a national medalist in the 50-meter butterfly and a sufferer of medial tibial stress syndrome. He's got a strong background in guiding researchers through commercialization in the Incubate Accelerator at the University of Sydney, and he's here to talk about it all today on the show. Hey, Ben, how are you doing? Hey, Peter, good. How are you? Yeah, really good. Thanks for coming on. Keen to talk about your story and everything, sports medicine and <laughs> medical devices and commercializing, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I so appreciate you making the time. No, thank you. It's the first time I've heard a podcast intro. Uh, I usually only hear them after the production, so it's a little bit pumped me up quite a bit yeah. of music there, yeah. <laughs> I do a bit of a, you know, it's a whole G up thing, right? And it's like, let's get in the mood. And, uh, <laughs> let's, let's make it happen, yeah. So that's good. And that way you get to hear about what I actually said about you rather than cutting it in afterwards. Oh, yeah. So I'm crossing my fingers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the no, magic awesome. of audio. Yeah. Hey, um, let's get to know a bit more about you, man. What's your story? Tell us a bit more about that backstory of Ben Lindsay and all about you. I was a swimmer, first and foremost for... 12, 13 years of my life. Um, I stopped swimming at about 23. Well, it wasn't about, it was 23 as soon as I do the quick math. So at 23, stopped swimming, but pretty much up until then, everything was primarily sport. So picked up swimming at a young age. You know, I was terrible, came from the UK, got good at swimming, got better at swimming. And then at about 18, I won my first like national open medal in the men's 50 fly which kind of opened up a lot of doors for me so was over at the west australian institute of sport moved to canberra to the ais to the australian institute of sport and then to n swiss so the new south wales institute of sport and that kind of move there that last move was really where i kind of made that internal decision about what about my life after swimming so up to that point i was studying oil and gas engineering of all things you know wa um so, <laughs> that's what you do in wa right <laughs> in wa mining or mining or rigs good money in it but then as i say decided not to keep doing the devil's work i didn't kind of see too much room for any ability to build or tinker really it seemed like a lot of checklists which don't get me wrong there's a lot of checklists in medtech but i kind of saw it as an opportunity to maybe build something myself from scratch so moved from Canberra to Sydney, University of Sydney, changed degrees, and then pretty much kind of like fell into this role. Met, like met a guy studying to be a medical doctor, orthopedic surgeon, uh, and then a medical product designer. And then we all were athletes and thought, hey, there's plenty of injuries that athletes suffer, and even at the highest levels, some of the best treatment you get is just to rest and rest for huge periods of time. And that's kind of where... I think the transition for all of us out of our athletic careers happened kind of like that little catch up. 
at a, at a university college in a terrible little dining hall. So <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah where I am now, basically. Got a device on the market and now chatting with you. Yeah, perfect, man. Well, tell us a bit more about the device then, Solution. So for those looking for it and just listening to the audio, S-O-L-U-S-H-I-N. What is it? Who's it for? What problems it solves? Get into more detail. Uh, so as athletes, all three of us had what was called medial tibial stress syndrome. So it's commonly called shin splints. Shin splints is a big umbrella term, which makes this injury a whole lot more tedious to treat because there's pretty much that just means any pain along or close to your shin. Uh, the most common form is medial tibial stress syndrome, bone load injury. So doing too much too soon, basically the bone can't remodel at a rate quicker than it's kind of resorbing or destroying bone. So the most common people to get it are runners. I just had terrible shoulders when I was swimming. So I do a lot of aerobic cross training. So like running, skipping, stuff like that. But then for decades, there was no innovation in how to treat it. People tried plenty of different things. You know, they've tried orthotics, got all right results, but very hit and miss. They tried extra corporeal shockwave therapy, very hit and miss. Pretty much came down to the only reliable form. Yeah, was resting, backing off, icing. And then if you talk to any athlete, that's the uh, worst thing you can do. The whole squad starts calling them weak, pussy, like harden up, get it done, all this stuff. And then, you know, you might progress to a stress fracture. So the solution was pretty much designed to be an adjunct to take what works, which is this kind of like rest and slow improvement over time. So it took about for 90% of sufferers to run for 18 minutes. It takes about 250 days um, to get back to 18 minutes of pain-free running. So it does work. It just sucks. Uh, was the, uh, the easy way to put it. So what we did was designed an adjunct that was going to take what works and make it quicker because we didn't want to come into the industry and beat our chests and say, this is how it's done uh, in a very conservative industry. We wanted to go, all right, you know, that works. That works pretty well. Not really, but it works and see if we can make a measurable improvement. And uh, it's pretty much what we've seen. We've done two clinical trials, double-blinded randomized control trial for medial tibial stress syndrome. We saw it return. Pretty much everyone in the device group was running pain-free by week five. So significant improvements from 250 days. And then everyone in the other study we did, uh, which was on just ankle range of movement. So improving what's called dorsiflexion. So think of your toes up towards your shin bone. Huge risk factor in not just in this injury, but tons of injury in sport, injuries in sports. So pretty much you look at an injury, you know, that's not a headache uh, in sport and someone will have connected poor dorsiflexion to it. So we just did another study there to show that the device improves it really quickly and effectively. And so for those that are trying to picture what it is, like, so is it a device? Is it a, a brace or something that you stick on your leg? What is it? A lot of people think it's a brace or a compression sleeve. One of the biggest challenges for us and why we have to go around and put it on everyone's legs is to show it's neither of those things. There's these things out there called compression sleeves. You know, a lot of you probably seen it for venous return. So you've got like in the hospital, older patients walking around with those tight garments on their legs. Some people use those for shin splints. They were our placebo because there's so much evidence to say that they don't work. But then the other thing is these rigid supporting braces. So what the solution does is it's, looks more like a brace with a sleeve in it. It's neither. It's quite an interesting thing. We've got a sleeve there to basically protect leg hair and make sure it's easy to slide on, but it doesn't do any compression. And then there's no rigid support. Instead, we've got what we call these counter-traction technology nodes, like our little spin on it. And we're targeting areas of high tension 
tension in the calf, uh, which causes that release in calf tension and then the improvement in dorsiflexion. And then we're compressing the inflammation. So the periostitis, which sufferers get with the injury. So basically patients get short-term pain relief, improve their calf range of motion. And it's not a brace, not a sleeve. It's probably closer to a little massage therapist kind of hanging on the back of your calf as you walk around the house. Nice one, nice one. And so you'd be speaking to a lot of podiatrists and physios and stuff yeah. like that. Are they the main kind of focus for this? Yeah, so we do do quite a bit of direct-to-consumer, but what we do with that is we're using it as kind of like our... So the best results come from using this as an adjunct. So if we just push a direct-to-consumer product and nothing else, we wouldn't expect to see great results. We would expect to see good pain relief, but we wouldn't expect to get a consistent kind of output where patients are running pain-free and then not having recurrence of the injury. So what we do is when people buy it, we try and push them to the clinics as well that we know and trust who do load management programs, who do strengthening, all these other little tools that work really well, or we predominantly sell through those clinics as well. So we've got a direct-to-consumer route, which is like a lead gen tool for our clinics. And then for the clinics, we sell direct to them and then they can take a clip as they sell it as well. Yeah, cool. And is it just in Australia or is it something you're looking at doing something more globally? Oh, yeah. So we used Australia as kind of like our watchtower market. When we were figuring this out early on as a kind of new tech with a very common injury and then a lot of resistance to change, like there was no change for a couple of decades, we thought we'd use Australia as kind of like our watchtower market. So put something out there, see how we could get it in the market, get better product market fit. It wasn't as easy as just making a product that worked. We were pressured early on to, you know, look at bringing in quite a lot of capital to go, all right, I know there's that LinkedIn Reid Hoffman kind of analogy, you throw all the bits of a plane off the cliff and try and build it before you hit the ground so you can fly away. Uh, blitz scaling, I think it's called. Uh, with us, what we kind of wanted to do was use Australia to kind of maybe build our first plane before we threw everything off the cliff so we could take off because we had enough money between us just to get there. And then if we need to bring in some working capital to build the rest of the fleet, so for the US, for the European markets, for the UK now, not European, uh, we can start, start start to look at that as well. Yeah, cool. Interesting. We've not spent a lot of time on talking health tech around sports medicine, and it's not intentional at all. It's an area that really interests me and keen to delve into more, but it'd be great to get from your side, just generally at creating technology for like, whether it's software, hardware, whatever it is, or solutions for sports medicine. What's it like in Australia? Is there much innovation that's happening in terms of devices and products in that area? I would have said a couple of years ago, no, but I think there was a lot of gimmicky products out there, which is what myself and a few other newer brands have had to kind of fight against. And I think it's the foundation everyone's kind of going with is right. We're not going to come in and make unreliable claims. We're all going to prove, I think another good brand out there is there's a Vold Performance, V-A-L-D. They do a stellar job, I think those guys and then there's another small product brand called fasciitis fighter it's like just this little tiny tool for plantar fasciitis and hamish the guy who's invented that has done the same thing it's like no i'm not going to come in here and give anyone unrealistic claims this is exactly what you've got to do and 
I think for the short term, not walking in and having like these inflated sales tactics, it's a bit tedious in the short term. I'll admit it doesn't mean quick sales, but you kind of got to just see it through for what it is. And then you start to build this trust. And I think those brands, how we've approached it, we're starting to see a better uptake in sports medicine in Australia of products because, you know, when we first started this, as soon as you said we've got a product or we've got an adjunct, you know, no, it's not someone's brain, it's not someone's hands, there was a lot of resistance. And I think it's just just because of the previous players in the industry were a bit too aggressive on those short-term sales and, you know, formed a big distrust in the area. And it sounds like something, you'd have, especially if it's a claim of being a treatment or having some kind of clinical outcome, any solution technology that you're creating that has that, obviously having a lot of research and you know, proof to provide that confidence is kind of important as well. No, definitely. And then one of the other things from, you can have all the clinical evidence in the world, but I think what these sporting teams need is they still want to see it obviously in front of them. So there's just distrust in the industry from previous players. So we kind of acknowledge that and we accommodate and we kind of work with them. So we've got teams out there helping us build stronger clinical evidence. We actually use them in the design process. We use all the podiatrists and physiotherapists we sell to early days in the design process. And I think that was just our way of overcoming kind of this distrust that was woven in the industry a little bit with products. And then now as I've learned more about the industry, I've started to go, I think we're doing the right thing because there's all these other brands out there who took the same approach that we didn't know about and they're all going pretty well as well now. And so thinking around a bit more about the commercialization side or getting something out to market, have you had to do all this yourself or have you had a bit of support in helping you kind of do that? Will, Rosa and I, we had, uh, it was all of us for quite some time. Uh, and then we realized that was not the right way to go about it. So, you know, we, at the start, we were like, oh, we've got to get ethics approval for this clinical trial. Like ethics committees were like, you guys are university students, get out of here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so in the end, what we did, we partnered with um, Sydney Sports Med Center and then they basically did our double-blinded RCT for us. So we gave it to an external investigator. And um, later on, I learned that's probably a good thing to do because, again, for trust, we basically provided the devices and had someone tell us, in their opinion, if they got results or not. And then, you know, from there, we partnered with New South Wales Health, helped us with the medical device commercialization training program. New South Wales Jobs gave us the MVP grant. I think it's now migrated under New South Wales Treasury. And then now uh, New South Wales Treasury have also helped us out with the Going Global program for China. So yeah, we've, I don't know, like I tell, so with the stuff I do at the university, I tell everyone there who kind of looks to Silicon Valley or looks to maybe Texas or looks to all these other industries around, you know, places where they can maybe take their idea to market around the world. And uh, I think New South Wales is becoming a pretty good place to start a business. What about some advice that you'd give to other kind of early stage founders? It sounds like you've had a few trial and errors and then connected with a few really important stakeholders to help you through that process. And, you know, in the Talking Health Tech community, we've got a lot of individuals, either clinicians that have found a potential area that they're going to want to create something for, or just the technologists that are trying to build something locally here in Australia and scale it out. If you were speaking to some of those early stage founders, what were some things you'd point out? Well, I think um, for a lot of them, for those who don't know, if you go and download the business model canvas, it kind of gives me a framework to talk on here. In med tech, in health tech, one of the difficulties everyone's going to have is if they look at like a startup manual, uh, they're going to see like the first thing you do is talk to your customers, then you develop this value proposition, and then you try and develop this solution 
like maybe so like an agile, you know, fast moving, quick pace moving, like you know, product development method that delivers on that value proposition of the customers. But I think the difficulty everyone is going to face is you've probably all got your own idea already. So you've got this bit of IP and you've got this product that you want to take to market and it's not as easy to change, right? Uh, you can't just be a fast mover in this space. So one of the challenges they're going to face is maybe not look to every startup manual and those steps, what you've got to kind of do is take what you can from it, but you've got to respect the fact that now you've got this product, you actually want to find where it sits. You're not going to change your product. Um, that was a difficult thing for us. So if you're looking at the business model canvas, they're going to be starting with what's called their key resource, which is their IP. And then they've got to go out and then no longer pick who they want to make something for. They've got to pick someone who's going to see value in their product. So you kind of got to go quite broad and start hypothesizing who's going to use it and why, how are they going to pay for it? What are they going to pay? And then basically like we did, we just did that modeled out the whole business model, including distributors, the wholesalers, you know, what their gross profit margin expectations were, what the end retail price was going to be for consumers. And then we basically asked ourselves, can we see a business here before we hit go? And then that would be my recommendation to them. So map out the full value chain, um, use the business model canvas, answer all the questions, then look at it and go, is this a sustainable, not as in green, a sustainable, is this a sustainable business with a solid growth trajectory and growth margin? If not, how are you going to fix it? It's just a good way to maybe not flog the dead horse uh, <laughs> down the racetrack. Yeah, I found too, going through that process, particularly when you're, if you're doing it by yourself to solve a problem that you're really passionate about, it can be so easy to go through that and almost try and justify to yourself that this is a good idea. So being able to do that objectively is really important. How did you do it in a truly objective way so that you're not convincing yourself that this is a good idea? Oh yeah. So, uh, Confirmation bias is a killer. Yeah, um, yeah so you got to get rid of it. So we were fortunate. I had a, the guy who ran the New South Wales Health Program, Ben Wright. He was a brilliant mentor to have. He was on our case because obviously we had this thing that we'd put through a clinical study by this point, and then he was like really making us hone in on it. Uh, we spoke to 500 runners through 13 weeks. Pretty easy to clock up that. Um, you just go to all the park runs on Saturday mornings and then just overcome your fear of starting a conversation. But then we also spoke to about 73 clinicians through that 13 weeks. And it was basically, they knew we were there to talk about shin splints, but what we did was we wouldn't tell them what we were doing. Even if they asked, we'd set the tone. All right, well, we're actually here to understand what you like and don't like about treating the injury. Uh, and then at the end, we can tell you about us, but we're not going to tell you yet because I don't want to hit, I don't want to steer you down the wrong path. And actually of all 73 clinicians, no one thought that was a bad thing. They all thought it was quite a good thing. And basically we had to ask ourselves with all this data from the interviews, do we actually solve this problem? And then can we make it at a cost that we can have a business, you know, are they willing to pay enough to solve this problem kind of thing? And we actually learned through that whole process in a good way. You know, we hypothesized that we needed to sell the device for a hundred dollars a pair. Uh, and we actually learned doing a price sensitivity analysis in those interviews that if we did that, no one would trust it. Actually, the trust cutoff was a hundred dollars a leg not a hundred dollars a pair. And then we found out that even though we ruled out the tertiary kind of customer segment, so the primary and secondary would be willing to pay it. We needed to sell this product for $199.99. As soon as it was a two, we were going to have problems. Uh, but as soon as it was just under, we had a trustworthy product and that was per leg. So we almost sold this 
for a quarter of the price we're selling it now and it would have been detrimental. So you're saying it would have been not as trusted because the price would have been too low? Yeah, so price anchoring. So what are other products at that price? They just do it straight away and they get all these, excuse the language, all these shit products. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and price. put you in that bucket. Um, yeah, so we had to, which was good for us because if we were selling it for $100 a pair, we would have looked at it and gone, this isn't a viable business model because we've got so many people along the path to the consumer if we want to grow rapidly and get access to all their sales reps and things like that. So $200 a leg, that was just a lesson in our own confirmation bias. So glad we spoke to a lot of people and worked that out because we would have been in a bit of trouble right now. It also meant the expectation was it had to be a high quality product. So it meant we had to really knuckle down and figure out a good way to manufacture it to a good standard. Yeah, to justify that price point. Yeah. Perfect. Now, there's some great advice for others thinking around that pricing is always a really hard kind of thing to land on and it's always different depending on where you are, but some good thoughts for others to build upon as they kind of go through that journey. Look, Ben, lastly, just back to solution for a second and the product and what your plans are for 2021 and beyond, what can we look forward to seeing from you guys moving into the coming months and years? So we're actually currently engaging both UK and US kind of counterparts to look at expanding there. We've kind of worked out how to sell it better here. You know, we did a lot of testing last year, a lot of tests that proved profitable, but not, you know, by, by a smidge. So it was kind of like not worth the time pursuing. And then we've worked out this little formula now, basically of going bottom up, getting all these influential people to buy and then endorse it. And then we can now go top down. So we're going to do the same now in the UK and the US. Basically it is a startup. So we're pretty much going to focus on who bites first with those two. So we haven't actually picked which one. We initially picked the US, but then we've our new distributor partner here in Australia has a great arm in the UK, so we might pivot that. So hopefully what everyone sees is we're doing more clinical studies and then we're also tapping into the US and UK markets by the end of the year. Excellent. I'll keep an eye out for it, guys. S-O-L-U-S-H-I-N solution. And uh, look, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time. I'll put some details for everyone to check out in the show notes on our website from this episode, and they can follow what you guys do. Good luck for everything you've got your eyes on. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.